will be in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm actually going to start reading a little bit before 53, uh, at the end of chapter 52. Verse 13 of 52 actually is our starting point. And this, this whole section, this song, as it were, is uh, describing this suffering servant who would come and would bear the sins of God's people. So the scripture says, Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understood. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet 
He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Gracious God, we just ask that you would give us understanding and insight and a will to believe what your word says. For the glory of your son Jesus, your suffering servant, your chosen one, the Holy One of Israel, in His name we pray. Amen. So I, I'm a little late to the party, I feel like, because um, I get to come in at the end of this chapter, uh, and technically we're looking at the last couple of verses in Isaiah 53 today. I thought it was good to read the whole thing because we're kind of ending this little series on Isaiah 53. But... Um, You'll have to forgive me if I repeat just a little bit of what you may have already heard in the previous sermons. I, it's not my intention to uh, plagiarize or steal anybody else's material here, but uh, some of it's too good for me not to say something about, so surely you can forgive me for this. But um, this chapter, this, this chapter or this section, beginning there at the end of Isaiah 52, to the end of Isaiah 53 has got to stand as one of the summits in the mountain range of prophecy from the Old Testament. In fact, um, I, I don't really want to talk a lot about myself, but I'll just say, uh, if I were ever to be stranded on a desert island and, and, and like I was kidnapped and they said, you get, you get five books from the Bible, that's it, forever. Isaiah makes the list, okay? If someone held a gun to my head and they said you get five chapters from the entire Bible for the rest of your life, this chapter makes the list. Um, this chapter is so remarkable a thing that when scholars are confronted, I, I want to say so-called scholars, but uh, when scholars are confronted with the reality of what it teaches, they have to come up with theories to explain that this couldn't possibly been have written this couldn't possibly have been written by the same Isaiah that lived uh, in the 8th century BC because it, it's it's just way too much like what happened in the New Testament and uh, and so you'll you will see uh, if, if you do very much digging that there are plenty of people that are ready to deny that Isaiah wrote this book uh, because this chapter and other places in Isaiah they just, they just, the prophecies are way, way too close to home. Um, we believe Isaiah wrote this chapter in the 8th century B.C. That makes it very remarkable. Because it is not only a description of the suffering servant and the work of Jesus, but it is a description of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, the idea that, that, that Christ suffered in our place and paid the penalty for our sins. And that's something that uh, isn't even always clearly taught to this level in New Testament books. And yet, here it is in Isaiah 53, 700-something years before the time of Christ, and it is a very clear description of that concept. 
So it's a, it's a remarkable chapter. And from the perspective of uh, 2018, you know, we look back at this and we think, okay, 8th century B.C., yeah, that's remarkable. But imagine living in that world that Isaiah was living in, that world where his prophetic ministry was happening. Um, Israel and Judah had divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, Israel, would be taken away into Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. They'd be dragged away into captivity. And yet, uh, in the middle of all of these geopolitical things happening there in that region, you get a book so full of bright hope about what God is going to do in the future and the deliverer that God is going to send. And yet, this hope that, that we speak of, that Isaiah speaks of, isn't anything like what we would have expected when we were looking for a Savior. Uh, Pastor Matt talked about we like our superheroes. And we like to think of people that have superpowers and uh, vanquish their enemies and, and, and win battles and win wars. We like to think of uh, those kinds of things and when we think about you know, what it means to have a Redeemer. And yet, uh, instead of someone on a horse breathing fire from his mouth and a sword and lightning from his hands or whatever, Jesus comes as a baby, vulnerable, lives life as a man, and then doesn't emerge as a particularly remarkable man other than the fact that he is a devoted servant to God. He does perform miracles. He does do some amazing things. He does preach some amazing sermons in his days. But his message, while it does bring people in and some are converted to follow him, it stirs up so much trouble that rather than embracing him, his own people turn on him and not long after uh, what, what, what is celebrated on what's called Palm Sunday, which is actually this Sunday, where they, they were saying, Hosanna, they were so glad, and he's riding on the donkey, and they're waving palm branches, and they're, his entry, just, just a week later, a few days later, they're saying, crucify him. Who would have thought that the Redeemer of humanity would come into the world and would be a suffering servant? Who would have thought that he would be one that would come and would die like a criminal and be punished like a criminal? We were looking for uh, what Martin Luther would call a theology of glory. We were looking for uh, a blazing Savior to ride in on a horse and consume the enemies of God. And what we got was a dying Savior. We got a theology of the cross. When God wanted to display His redemption to mankind, He didn't send a superhero to consume His enemies. He sent His Son to die for sinners. This message would have been so far away from what was expected that Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 1, who is going to believe this? 
Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's going to buy this? This is not what we were expecting. If I were going to make sections in Isaiah 53, crude ones, different than the ones we've already had, I'd just say from 52.13 down to 53.6, we might say he's not what we expected. From 53.7 through 9, uh, we would say he, was a su- he suffered willingly. He suffered willingly. So that's another thing that you might, you might pay attention to about this chapter and about Jesus. Jesus wasn't overtaken by his enemies and succumbed to their uh, violence. He laid down his life for his sheep. He willingly entered into the suffering of the cross. In fact, he said, I came into the world to do this very thing. When he had set his face towards Jerusalem to go that way and to die for sinners, some of his disciples tried to argue with him. And they said, no. But yet, that's what he did. And and, and I think this is painted very clearly for us here in Isaiah 53. It says, he was oppressed, verse 7. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Many people have observed, I think rightly so, Jesus could have called forth the armies of heaven to defend him had he so chosen to do so. He did not cease to be very God of very God, even as he lived as a man among us. He did not cease to be God. He laid aside the privileges of being God. He laid aside... Maybe the independent, I don't even know how to talk about this without sounding ridiculous. Maybe he laid laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes um, while he was here on earth. But I can assure you of this, Jesus had the power to protect himself. He's walking on water, he's feeding thousands from a few loaves of bread. He can handle a crowd saying crucify him. He could handle some Roman soldiers. Not going to be a problem for him. He's the word through which the universe sprung into existence. So he could have done that. He doesn't. He lays down his life willingly. And then the last section of Isaiah 53, I said if you look at 52, 13 through through 53, 6, he was a suffering servant, or he wasn't what we expected. 53, 7 through 9, he suffered willingly. There he is before his shearers, like a lamb silent. 53, verses 10 through 12, I'm really supposed to be 11 and 12, but I'll just say 10 through 12, he is, uh, his suffering accomplished his purpose. And I think you see that very clearly here. His suffering accomplished his purpose. And that's what I want you to see as we try to dig in a little bit to these last few verses in Isaiah 53. So, um, the text says, out of the anguish of his soul, in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So not only does Jesus do this work of, of laying down his life and suffering for sinners, Jesus looks at this activity, this anguish of his soul, 
and he takes pleasure in it. He is satisfied. That's a very interesting thing. Or maybe that means God is satisfied because the he is connected to uh, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief back in verse 10. What we see here is that God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God intended for it to go down like that. So the cross, the suffering, the death, the laying down his life, this was not an accident. This was intentional. And the result of it is something that pleases God. The result of this suffering is something that Jesus himself finds satisfaction in. The text goes on, it says, By his knowledge shall the, the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquity. So this is why God is satisfied with the suffering of Christ. This is why Jesus is satisfied out of his own anguish, because it was for a purpose. And here's what the purpose was. He died as a substitute for our sins. I, I said this big, this big theological concept of substitutionary atonement, okay? Atonement means a, a sacrificial payment for something. Usually the idea of atonement is when you do something wrong, there, there is an act or there is a payment or there is some kind of a recompense for something that you've done. When a person says, I want to atone for my sins, what they mean is, they want to somehow pay for the crime they've committed. They want to, they want to make up for that. If, if I get into an argument with my wife and I behave like a total horse's tail, not that I would ever do that, uh, but I might, want to, I might want to bring a flower home or I might want to take her out, I might want to do some act to atone for my acting like a horse's tail. See, that's the, that's, that's the concept as we use it. But theologically, when we talk about uh, substitutionary atonement, we're saying that someone in our place does that thing that makes things right. And so Jesus, in this equation, is the substitute. He's the one that pays for our sins. He's the one that acts on our behalf. He's the one that functions as a redeemer. That's, that's what that means. A redeemer is the one that does that for us. And it's all over this chapter. It's all over this chapter. Uh, back in verse 5, Robert read this. I've already read it, but I'll read it again because I think it's too good to pass up. He was wounded for our transgressions. See, we're the transgressors. He was wounded. That's a substitutionary atonement. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our iniquities, those are our sins. Those are the wrongs that we have done. We deserve to be crushed. He's crushed on our behalf. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He got the chastisement. We got the peace. With his stripes we are healed. Sometimes this is translated. I actually prefer the uh, stripes is kind of the traditional translation. But I actually prefer uh, by his wounds we are healed. The opposite of being healed is being wounded. Jesus is wounded on our behalf so that we might be healed. We deserved to be wounded for our sins. He was wounded in our place. Verse 8, it says, He was cut off of the land of the living 
stricken for the transgression of my people. So my people, including Isaiah, Isaiah counts himself in that group, by the way. My people deserve punishment. He's the one that receives being cut off from the land of the living. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why did God crush him? Why did God put him to grief? So that verse 11 can say, My servant can make many to be accounted as righteousness. He will bear their iniquities. There again, the idea of substitution. Then again, at at the end of verse 12, He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So again and again and again, He bears the sin. He's wounded. We're healed. He's separated. We're reconciled. He is cut off. We are received. We commit the iniquities. He pays the price. He suffers as a substitute for us. If there isn't anything else you get from the concept of Christianity, this is the most important thing to get. What we believe, our central claim, the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we have a payment for our sins in Jesus Christ, and we can't pay for our sins ourselves. If you have ever come to believe that you're so bad you can't fix yourself, you need that kind of Savior. If you've ever done things that you can't undo, you need that kind of Savior. If you've ever realized that there are broken things about yourself that you can't fix, you need that kind of Savior. And spoiler alert, the Scriptures plainly teach that that's where we all are. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All have turned aside to their own way. There is none righteous, not even one. If all of us were called to account for whether or not we had obeyed God and lived the lives we should have lived, we would have to say, I have not. The preacher has not. The elders and the pastor at this church have not. Everyone who's a member of this church has not. Sunday school teachers have not. None of us, not even one, are righteous in and of ourselves. Our claim as Christians is not that we're good. It's the opposite. It's that we're so bad we need a Savior. Our claim is that Jesus is good. Our church is called Redeemer, not because we're good, but because we need a Redeemer. That's why we are what we are. That's why we say what we say. And this is not just Isaiah. You know, somebody might say, well, this Old Testament is really heavy with all the judgment and the condemnations and the abominations and on and on it goes. So, uh, you know, Isaiah's out of character. Actually, this, this passage in Isaiah, is this might as well be a gospel passage. I... I, I have jokingly said many times in my life, really this should be called the Gospel of Isaiah because this is the closest thing to a, a, a description of the suffering of Christ and its, and its value uh, even more often than what you find in the Gospels themselves. But this is, not, this is not just some weird Old Testament prophet. Peter says it like this. You'll find it interesting that Peter actually quotes Isaiah. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Now, what do, you think, what do you think he's referring to when he says, by his wounds we are healed? He's pointing back to this passage in Isaiah chapter 53. But notice the way Peter says it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. What, what happened there? That's the crucifixion that we're talking about. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we're healed. For, uh, Peter does it again. 1 Peter 3.18. I'm just jumping in the middle of the verse. and there's a, I could dot, dot, dot this, but I'll just read the relevant part here. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ died for our sins. And what do we mean when we say for our sins? We mean the righteous for the unrighteous. We mean there is an exchange. I should have gone and suffered the penalty of my sins. Christ in my place is suffering the penalty of my sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it so brilliantly. This is a favorite passage. For our sake. Now for our sake. That, those are, that's an important qualifier. For our sake. He that is God made him that is Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, one, one pastor remarked, who's the one who knew no sin? That was Jesus. Who's the one is, that is counted as the righteousness of God in this equation? Oh, that's us. In salvation, in the cross, in Christianity, what happens is, Christ, who is sinless, pays the price for man who is sinful. God treated Jesus on the cross as though he had committed every single sin of every person that would ever believe. And in faith, God treats us as though we were Christ in his righteousness. There is an exchange that happens here. You're not righteous, and he wasn't a sinner. But God struck him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. And yet, like Isaiah says, we are accounted righteous. Galatians 3.13, Paul says about Jesus, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus is cursed in our behalf. We are redeemed from the curse of the law because he suffered in our behalf. And then, of course, all of those things that we just read in Isaiah 53. But uh, here's what this means, okay? What this means is what verse 12 says back in Isaiah 53. Because the Lord was pleased to crush him, and because... Out of the anguish of his soul, he sees and is satisfied. Now, those that know the servant, 11 says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities, or, and he shall bear their iniquities. What we end up with is what verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he was poured out, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
So here's the way it works. What God does is he divides the inheritance of Christ that Christ earned, that Christ deserves with us. So one side of this is in the substitution, Jesus dies on our behalf. The other side of this equation, just like we read in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God counts us as righteous and he gives us the spoils. He gives us the inheritance that would have belonged to Christ. So not only does God, this is how crazy the gospel is, not only does God wash away our sins, he makes us better than if we were a blank slate. He doesn't just use the cross and wipe the slate clean and then hand us the slate and say, okay, get to work. He wipes the slate clean and then imprints in the place of our sin the very righteousness of Christ. He puts the righteousness of Christ to our account and now he relates to us not like we're innocent. He relates to us like we are positively righteous because of Christ and what he has done. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, your standing with God is not a blank slate. It's not a clean slate. It's not back to zero. Your stance with God is counted as righteous, marked out as a son and daughter, one who will inherit the very riches of God himself. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not that we're just forgiven. Forgiveness is awesome. But we're actually counted as righteous in Christ. And the righteousness that we have in Christ because of this work that Jesus did is not in any way contingent upon anything we do, ever. Now, I'm not saying that when God saves a person, He doesn't change their nature, because He does. When God saves a person, He sets them on a new, a new course. And they love things that they didn't used to love. And they start to hate things that they used to love. They start to hate sin and they start to love righteousness. And they begin to change. Maybe little by little at first. Maybe quite radically. But they begin to be transformed. They are new creatures, the scripture says. Even though all of that's true, and I affirm that, I want to tell you, at the judgment, from a legal perspective, if you have faith in Jesus, you will be no more righteous than you are right now. There is nothing you could do to make yourself better from a righteousness perspective. There is nothing you could do to make yourself worse if you have faith in Jesus. Because your legal standing with God isn't dependent upon you or your performance. It's 100% dependent on Christ. What it means to have faith in Christ is to believe in that and to rest in that and to be assured in that. So, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up here. I, I have a few points of application drawn from, I think, what, what we find here in this text. First of all, Jesus' death is enough for you. If, if you're a sinner if you've come to realize that, it doesn't matter how bad you are or how bad you've been or what you've done, the death of Christ is enough. And it's not enough because we add something to it. It's not enough because we bring anything to it to make it better. 
it's the same thing as adding something to it. It's enough because it was Christ himself that did it. It's a heavy burden to bear when you realize that you're broken and you can't fix yourself. It's a heavy burden to bear. Oh, there's the popping. Uh, it's a heavy burden to bear when you feel guilty and you don't know how to alleviate your guilt. The cross of Christ was that thing which alleviates guilt. That's the thing that cleans the conscience. That's the thing that makes you clean before God. Now, I'll, I'll just say this. It, it, it looks to me like, this is my understanding here, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Now, why was the Lord pleased to crush him? Because out of that crushing came righteousness for those who believe. Jesus himself sees the fruit of this transaction out of his suffering, out of the anguish of his soul, he is seized and will be and he's satisfied. He knows that he's going to produce a, a, a nation, a race of redeemed humanity. And he takes satisfaction in this. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, I love to talk about the book of Hebrews a bunch, okay? But uh, the, chapter 10, there's this section where it talks about the way the sacrifices used to work and the way that, that Jesus works is that in the, in the temple system, these priests were constantly offering sacrifices. There were no seats in there because the work was never done. There's a constant work of sacrifice that needs to happen to atone for sin. But when Jesus was finished with his work, he sat down at the right hand of God to await until his enemies become footstools for his feet. The very beginning of the book of Hebrews, it says, after he purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The reason that Jesus sat down is because that work was done. So here, here's the deal. If God is satisfied, pleased to crush him, and Jesus is satisfied, out of the anguish of his soul, he looks and he takes satisfaction in this transaction, then what is there left to do but just to rest in that? There isn't anything left for you to do but just to believe in Jesus and you will be saved. That is the gospel. There, there's no beating yourself. There's no whipping yourself. There's no months of penance. There's nothing to be done. Jesus did it all. Just believe and you will be saved. It's just like that. Okay, second application. If you are trusting in Christ, if you believe in Jesus then your sins are forgiven. You are counted as righteous by God. He didn't just make salvation possible for you. He saved you. He died for your sins. His death was enough. You don't ever have to pay for your sins because they're already paid for. There is no debt that I owe to God because Jesus paid it. So stop carrying it. Stop with the constantly feeling guilty if you trust in Jesus. He bore that guilt. You don't need anything else. <clears throat> Third, which is related to the other two things I've just said, find your assurance in Jesus' death, not in your experience or your performance or whatever else. 
you know, we, we hear testimonies of folks, and we think, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I believe in Jesus, and I think my sins are forgiven, but, I mean, I don't have an exciting testimony like Paul. I wasn't like a persecutor and a, a Pharisee, and then all of a sudden I saw a vision of Christ, and I, I, I didn't, no miracles happened. I just believed. Or maybe if you're a, a younger person or, or even a child, um, you don't have a story to tell about, uh, you know, life on the railroad or <laughs> something like that where all the bad times as a homeless person or a drug addict or anything like that. But guess what? Uh, y- your experience is what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's your salvation experience. That's the value. In, it isn't what happened to us. It isn't that we've got a good story to tell. It isn't even that we've got good performance since then. Some of us think, well, I believe in Jesus, but, but I still struggle. And I, I, I feel like, like in a few areas of my life, I'm just not getting anywhere. I keep coming back to Jesus, but it, it's, not, it's not fixed. Listen, if someone tells you that you're going to become a Christian and all of your problems are going to be solved and you're not going to struggle with your sins anymore, they're a liar. You should run from them. They are the enemy of your soul. They're not your friend. John says, if we say we have no sin, we're liars, and the truth is not in us. Don't don't even listen to that nonsense. The person who has truly been converted, the person that really knows Jesus, may have a more acute sense of their sinfulness than they ever did when they were an unbeliever. When I hear someone say to me, I just feel terrible about what I've done, that to me sounds more like a Christian than the person who is confident that they've got it all together. Run from that dude that thinks he's got it all together. Christ had it all together. That's your testimony. I can have assurance that my sins are forgiven, that I'm right with God, because Jesus raised from the dead. I don't want to spoil next week's sermon. I don't want to spoil Easter for anybody. But the cross... That was Jesus writing the check, (laughs) okay? The resurrection was God's declaration that the check cleared. And the check cleared. The reason Jesus raised from the dead is because the suffering of his soul accomplished what it intended. And then last, I'm going to say it again. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer or if you don't know that your sins are forgiven, There's nothing required of you except faith in Jesus. He'll fix everything else. You're not going to be perfect. doesn't mean all your problems are going to go away. doesn't even mean that you're not going to struggle with sins that you've struggled with your whole life. But that legal problem you have with God, He'll take care of it. Brothers and sisters and friends, I'm glad we have this kind of Savior. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Gracious God, we aren't even capable of really taking in what a, what a great and amazing thing it is to have our sins forgiven and to be counted as righteous through what Jesus has done. Help us, Lord, to take it in and to believe it. Help our souls to be changed by it. Help us to feel like we are loved because we are in Christ. 
Lord, give our consciences that boost of confidence they need to know that our sins are forgiven. And help us to look at Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.